You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Can you hear me? All right. I am just going to quickly open this here because I, this is my brain. This is my other brain. So I need my brain with me a little bit. It makes me a little feel a little better. I am so glad to be here with you guys. So I can't all, see all of your faces, but there's actually um, a number of you that I've known for a lot of years. Of course, um, and my daughter's here. Yay. My husband's also here. Um, but Lisa and Cindy, yeah. There he is. <laughs> He's running the book table today. But um, uh, Lisa and Cindy and I have known each other from when we were all single. Cindy and I back in Tucson. Lisa, we met in Poway, California, in San Diego. And we have... Uh, you know, when you have friends for that long, you um, woo, you go through hard things together. And uh, grateful for the years of our friendships. It's so great to have the kind of relationships we have in the kingdom. And so when they talk to me about coming, I'm like, I would love to. It's like girl time. Um, a lot of times I do speak where it's the men and women together, which is unusual, right? Oh, my gosh. You would talk about sex, and they're sitting next to each other. I know. Um, But it is kind of fun to do it just with the girls. So I was really excited that we could address some specific things. We do. Shh, don't tell them. We have some men in the room. Um, They're going to be here because actually anybody could hear the, well, I think, anybody could hear the stuff we're going to talk about today. (laughs) Um, On the other side of it, though, when we get to the questions and answers, in case you're wondering what to write on that card, they will be leaving the room. So when we do the question and answers, and you can write down on your cards what you want, and I'll get through some of them today, but um, they won't be listening to that part. So, um... So you did such a great job, Jacqueline, introducing me. I am a doctor of psychology, so what do I do? People ask me, you're a sex therapist and you're a disciple, (laughs) right? Like, how would you do that? That's a really good question. And then what exactly do you do? And I said, well, um... What we do in my office is physically G-rated, verbally X-rated. So in other words, today's going to be like that. It's going to be verbally X-rated as in. We're going to talk about parts of the body. We're going to talk about some physiology. Some of you, okay, I'm going to ask you a question, and then I'm going to have you close your eyes and raise your hands uh, if, if this is you. How many of you, when you heard this topic, thought, oh, Great. Another purity lesson. We're going to hear another lesson about how short our shorts shouldn't be and how much cleavage we should show. Great. Close your eyes. Raise your hands if that's what you were anticipating. Oh, come on, you liars. Okay. Anyway. Um, I mean, we are going to talk about purity, but maybe in a different way than you've heard it. I do joke. I tell people, I'm like, they'll say, you know, can you come teach a purity class? So I taught a purity class 
for the teens at teen camp in San Diego a couple of years ago. And actually, my daughter was in the audience. <laughs> and all the kids at camp were, were razzing my kids afterwards because they were like, did you hear what your mom talked about in that purity class? Right? <laughs> because it wasn't the typical purity lesson. So <laughs> we might do some untypical things, but I do want to say, for some people, sexuality is full of lots of confusion and pain and and frustration, and so, and if you've had any kind of a background where there's been any kind of molestation, uh, violating touch, any kind of sexual trauma, this could be a difficult topic for you. Now, people are going to be getting up to go pee in the bathroom, so if you get uncomfortable with parts of the topic, get up and walk away. It's okay. You know what I mean? Like, don't feel like if I get up, everybody's going to know I'm this, I'm struggling. The reality is, this topic might bring up some difficult things for you, so it's okay if you need to go take a walk, and because it's hard. Some of the things we're going to talk about, I don't think they in and of themselves are trauma-inducing, but because if somebody has a background where this topic is hard, it can bring up some traumatic feelings. And so I tell people, actually, let's just do it with me. Everybody with me, breathe in your nose and out your mouth. Do it again. Breathe in your nose. Breathe out your mouth. Okay, so if I say some word that makes your heart just go, oh my gosh, I can't believe she just said that, breathe in your nose, okay? (laughs) All right. I'm supposed to use my clicker. But the reason why I say that is because that's a basic relaxation exercise. If you see a therapist and they're working on anxiety and trauma, they're going to teach you a basic relaxation piece because breathing, if you do it real low in your gut, I'm a singer. Uh, My actual, my undergrad is musical theater vocal performance. And I know, and so <laughs> it's funny because it'll come out while I'm teaching. But, <laughs> but the breathing part, you learn it when you sing, but actually we need it, okay? Uh, sexuality can bring up a lot, life can bring up a lot of tension, and so I tell people breathe. So, uh, yeah, let's just get going. These are my kids. One <laughs> so on the left is when they're little, and then we redid the photo. (laughs) So some of you know them. Micah, my son, Jacqueline, my daughter, uh, Nicholas and Landon. So then we did it later. This is the most recent photo. So that's my six-foot-two Nicholas. He's coming back from Alaska today from the Hope Youth Corps. Landon has a He's got a, he broke three bones. He's got a double cast in that picture, at, and uh, he's actually going off to Philly, Hope Youth Corps, and Jacqueline's going to Africa in a couple of weeks. So they're all, yeah, we're spending a lot of money on Hope Youth Corps this summer. Um, I, woo, I shouldn't even say this. Woo, I love my kids. Woo, okay, next part. And uh, I have the best partner in the world. If you get to meet my husband... I was just telling Mika the story of our dating relationship, and it's a wonderful one. So, this topic, I have a question for you, and I want you to try, I don't know how this is going to work, but as loud as you can, without, uh, so I can hear some of your answers. What came up for you when you did see this? So those of you who raised your hand and said, okay, that was another purity lesson, thank you for admitting that. But this is the topic, right? So what came up for you? It might be positive or negative. Go ahead and say it. Positive. Say it again. Physiology. Physiology. That's new? 
God's view, you're like, can we please talk about God's view? What else? Feeling? Healing. Oh, thank you for saying that. I hope that happens today. Destigmatizing. Well, that would be a great goal, wouldn't it? Say it again. Finally! <laughs> okay, I have to tell you something that's kind of funny. So, I do teach all over. We, did, we have done it internationally. I teach in San Diego. And sometimes I do feel like I'm going, you need me to come speak for you. You need me to come speak for you. Let me come and speak for you. So actually, I mean, I don't mean it like self-thing. I just know we need the destigmatizing thing. We need to make it like okay to talk about sex. So, well, kudos to you. Some of you might have been like, that's scary. You know, there might have been some negative feelings. I hope that today can be helpful with that. Um, Because there are a lot of challenges, there are a lot of concerns, a lot of fears, a lot of questions that come up around sexuality. So... Um, if this brings up a lot, I am literally going to talk about top of the iceberg. You know, we're only going to hit a little bit today. You can go on my website. uh, Those of you who are married, you can listen to everything on The Art of Intimate Marriage. It's the name of our book, theartofintimatemarriage.com. But within the next couple months, you're going to actually start hearing the lessons for for anybody uh, based on redeemed sexuality. So I have a radio show. Uh, in San Diego. You can listen to it at any time on K-Bright, K-B-R-I-T-E, Saturdays at 11. You can listen to it anywhere in the world. But um, on that radio show is some pretty, yeah, talk about explicit topics, right? Um, But it might answer your questions. But uh, like Jacqueline was mentioning, if this isn't enough for you, you can read some more later. But what we're going to start off with is what is the spiritual view of sexuality? So a nod to that major. Uh, Okay, this is what we do. God is over here. Sex is over here. And those two things shall never meet. I had a book uh, that I had, that I, it was one of the first books, uh, probably 12 years ago, where I was really trying to do my own exploration of what sexuality in the Bible, what is it? And it's a book called Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. So people, and I would accidentally sometimes leave it on my, uh, no, my, my table, and people would go, what is that book? Sex and the supremacy of Christ. I mean, that's like God and, you know, Jesus. That's like Jesus and sex in the same sentence. That just seems wrong, right? I mean, he never had sex. So why would you put those two words in a title of a book? So we do that. We're really uncomfortable with thinking about God and sex in the same sentence. But it's really important that we understand biblically, spiritually, godly, what does the Bible teach? Because there's a lot of false things out there, and they're not just in the world. Actually, there's a lot of false things even within our family of churches. A false, I don't know that it's intentionally false, uh, maybe, but I don't think so. I think it's mostly that we're just scared. We don't know what to, or we don't know how to talk about it. So hopefully that will help today. All right, this part I am going to go through relatively quickly just because it's a whole huge conversation in itself, but let's, let's look at it. All right, this is straight out of Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. Sexuality is designed by God as a way to know God more fully. What does that mean? Okay, 
Let's look at it scripturally. This is based out of Ezekiel 16 and 23. Just read it with me. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to, um, to make you clean. No, no one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field. For on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and I saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew and you were naked and bare. And later I passed by. And when I looked at you, I saw that you were old enough for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and I covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord. And you became mine. Okay, tell me. Who is he talking about here? The nation of Israel. Now, this is kind of weird, right? He's, he's describing, you were naked, I cleaned you. And then here he says, then I noticed, you know, you were old enough for love, so I spread the corner of my garment over you. This is, um, the Bible doesn't have many direct terms about sexuality. They're usually euphemisms. So this is the term that where Naomi says to Ruth, uh, go sleep next to Boaz, and he's going to put the corner of his garment over you. It's a term that refers to sexuality, to an intimate relationship only with that person, right? So here he's using, even in the positive sense, he's talking about the nation of Israel, and he's using these sensual, in love, even sexual kind of terms. This is God talking about the nation of Israel. Now he says... But, he says to the nation of Israel, you trusted in your beauty. I'm just going to read the um, bolded parts. Look at the words in this passage. To become a prostitute, you lavished your favors. Use the word prostitution several times there. You engaged in prostitution. You degraded your beauty, offering your body with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. Uh, You exposed your nakedness and your promiscuity with your lovers. uh, I will strip you in front of them, and they will see your nakedness. Okay, now then it goes to Ezekiel 23, and it gets even more explicit. In that land, their breasts were fondled and their virgin bosoms were caressed. Uh, Verse 7 and 8, during your youth, men slept with her, caressed her virgin bosom, and poured out their lust upon her. She lusted after her lovers, whose genitals were like those of donkeys, and whose emission was like those of horses. In the lewdness of your youth, when in Egypt your bosom was caressed and your young breasts fondled. Okay, remember here. He's still talking about the nation of Israel. Yeah. Okay. He's using, he's using language that's super sexual to describe something. So they were committing idolatry, right? They were worshiping other idols. And he uses the language of adultery. Why? Okay, for those of you who are married, for those of you who have been married and are no longer married, for those of you who are hoping to get married, I'm a, I'm a marriage and family therapist. So couples come in and they've, they've, you know, often what's happened, because I specialize in sexuality, there's been an affair or there's been some kind of betrayal. It is, ask any married couple, you yourselves might have experienced it. Infidelity and unfaithfulness is incredibly, incredibly painful. Right? It's the thing you never want to have happen in your relationships. You may have committed it. Someone may have committed it against you. It's incredibly destructive and painful. And God is saying here, I need you to understand my heart. 
When you go and worship these other idols, it rips me apart in the same way as when somebody commits adultery, right? So he uses vivid sexual language to express himself so that we can know his heart. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's almost a little bizarre. Like he says, uh, I don't know, genitals were like those of donkeys and a mission like that of horses. I don't know, have you seen the pictures of horses' genitals? Like, you know, right? Okay, I have to admit, you've all probably seen them. And you just think, why would God use that language? He's wanting to say, listen, I am ripped apart when you worship other idols, right? So God uses sexuality to be a language between us and him so that we can know him more fully, so that we can know his heart. Now, what this does, right, what this does is it puts sexuality in this whole new realm. It's not just about having sex. It's about this much bigger piece as well. So what are some other things? That's the first big one, right? Sexuality, that's a big one. It's designed by God as a way to know God more fully. The language between us, and it makes sense because think about it. Um, we all know this, okay? The rocks do what? Cry out. And the trees do what? Clap their hands and sing, right? When you, like, I don't know about you, but like when I go out, um, we live in this beautiful, I live in San Diego. I was born in, uh, not born, but I was raised in Colorado, so the Rocky Mountains are like, oh my gosh, right? When you go see the ocean, right? And you see the mountains and you're like, wow. Right? The, the rocks cry out. The trees clap their hands. So God uses the physical, period, to communicate to us. He says, here I am. I want you, you know, you feel closer to God a lot of times when you can go and sit in nature and just go, wow, God. Right? He's the creator. And nature helps us to know him more fully. So God already uses the physical to let us know who he is. Well, and that makes a lot of sense, too, because what did he do? He took himself and incarnated himself into the body of Jesus. So he speaks to us through the physical. He showed us his very person by putting himself in the body of Jesus. So he uses the physical to show himself that we could know him. And he uses the sexual to show us himself so that we can know him. It really helps when you put sexuality into that whole explanation. He uses the physical um, and it's really fun because this is reflected in the language of the Bible. Th- this is so interesting. So in the Greek, in Matthew 1, it says, Joseph did not know her, Mary, till she brought forth a son. Now, in today's NIV and so on, it'll say he didn't have sexual relations with her. The actual word there is gnosko. It's only one word. Joseph did not gnosko Mary until she brought forth a son. And it means to know. He did not know her. Okay? So look at this. John 10 says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And the Father knows me and I know the Father. The same word, gnosko, is used. That when God's talking about how he knows us, he says, I gnosko you. And you gnosko me. And that the relationship between Jesus and God, Jesus and God, they gnosko, they know each other. How much, so just shout some words, how much do Jesus and God know each other? 
everything, right? So they're the same. Jesus is God. So that deep, intimate, know everything about each other is the word that God chose to use for hmm, some reason to describe the sexual relationship between Joseph and Mary. Right? Now, it doesn't mean that the opposite is true, that it's a sexual thing between Jesus and God and us and God. That's, that's how the pagans do it with you know, having sex in the temples and things like that. It means that sex, again, the overarching spiritual view of sex is that it's about deep, intimate connection. That's what sex is actually about biblically. And it's really fun because guess what? It's in the Old Testament. So look at uh, Genesis 4 says, Now Adam, yada, Eve. Okay, okay. So we know the phrase, yada, yada, yada. Right? Right? It's a Jewish idiom, which means I know, I know, I know. And they also use it to mean sex as well. It's a, it's a sexual idiom. And so Adam, yada, Eve. Guess what yada means? To know. So in the Old Testament, it's the same as with the Greek in the New Testament. Um, and so we see it reflected. Jeremiah 31. No longer will they teach their neighbors and say to one another, Know the Lord. It's yada the Lord because they will yada me. So, again, this really helps when people ask me very specific questions like, Should we do this sexually when we're married? Are you allowed to do this when you're married? I have that question whenever I teach married workshops. What are we allowed to do? And it's a good question. I actually have a list of questions. Questions that I have couples go sit down with. It's eight different things. It's called my what's allowed list. And it's, you know, it's got a question and then it's got scriptures after it. Well, we do need to know what's allowed, but this will right there guide it. If it creates intimate connection between you and I, then it fits in the overarching view. I can't emphasize this enough. When you're wondering, should I do this sexually? Does it create an intimate connection between you and your married partner? If it doesn't, then it doesn't fit. There might not be a scripture that says, don't do that. There might not be a specific scripture. But you can go, huh, does it fit in that overarching principle of sexuality in the Bible? There's other ways that this word is used. Um, This is kind of idea number three. Knowing God guards and guides our sexuality. As a church, we know this one quite a bit better. That if I follow God and obey him and I'm a good disciple, then I won't make poor sexual choices. But let's broaden that idea a little bit. Because, okay, today, ah, I love the songs you guys chose. If we know who God is, we know him intimately and deeply, that's what guards and guides our sexuality. It's not just following the rules and reading your Bible every morning and praying. It's a depth of intimate knowing of him. And when you know him, it grounds you so much that it guides how you live, right? So it will guide your sexuality. Um, This is shown in the scriptures. This is Romans 1. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. So they didn't think it worthwhile, and here's the word gnosko, uh, to gnosko God. 
that deep, intimate knowing of God. They didn't retain that, and so therefore they ended up exchanging the truth of God for a lie and giving themselves over to sexual impurity. It's also reflected in 1 Thessalonians 4, the heathen who do not know God, that's gnosko, give their bodies to sexual immorality. Gosh, that's just such a relieving thing. So I, you know, I, this is probably the single greatest thing that I have grounded myself in through the years is who is he? Who is he? I actually have a list of scriptures that I've just come up with over the years. It's called my what, uh, How God Feels About Me scriptures. If you want them, just send me an email, jenniferconson at yahoo.com. I'll send them to you. I've put them together over the last 30 years, um, just whenever I come across one in my own quiet times. And I need to know who he is, because if I'm going to entrust how I live, I need to know who I'm trusting. And so our knowledge of him guides not just our entire life, but it also guides and guards our sexuality. But it's not just a going to church or reading our Bibles. It's a deep knowing. These are just a couple other overarching things that we find in the Bible, is that sex is used, the word honorable is used multiple different times. And gosh, that's just not what's out there in the world. Sex is not portrayed honorably. It's actually just kind of thrown out there, right? And um, so marriage, this is this word honorable. Well, actually, let me go to the bottom here and show you. What it actually means, it's the word, the word time in the Greek. It's not time. It's the word time in the Greek, and it means of worth and value. That it, is so, it actually doesn't just mean worth and value. It means an incredible amount of worth and value, like the most expensive thing you could possibly have. That's the word that's used here when at the bottom it says, this is actually 1 Corinthians 12, the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. That term right there um, is used, um, so 1 Corinthians is talking about how we should treat the unpresentable parts of the body, okay? And it's talking about the church, the, the kingdom, the family of God, and that we should treat one another, no, we should treat those who are less, uh, whatever word you want to use, less presentable, less important, the whatever word we're going to use as with deep honor. Well, but we forget to realize that he's using the physical body to describe the, phys- the spiritual body in 1 Corinthians 12. And so he's saying that there are unpresentable parts. Okay, ladies, what are our unpresentable parts? What are they? Say them, come on. Breast, what else? Somebody said vagina. I'm so proud of you. Okay, so, so we're going to do some physiology. The actual name for the whole region is called vulva. Everybody with me right now say vulva. Okay, everybody, ready? Vulva. The boys just heard it. Okay, they will live. They will live. Okay, they have a penis. Okay, there are parts of your body... And they are unpresentable. We don't walk around showing our vagina and our vulva. <laughs> or our breasts, no matter how much somebody believes in free the tatas. Okay? If you don't know about that, it's a campaign. All right? So, the Bible in 1 Corinthians 12 actually says that they're unpresentable. But we go, ooh, cover them up. And God goes, no. They are to be treated with special honor. In other words, you don't just go, look, 
right? I mean, anybody ever seen the crown jewels? There are some, and I don't mean some guys. In England, there are the crown jewels, and they're, what kind of security are they kept under? Oh my gosh, okay, you've seen them in the movies. They show them in the movies, right, that you can't even get in there, and if you do all those fake movies about stealing the crown jewels. Okay, they're kept under tight security. They're kept, right? So it's not about, cover them up, girls. It's about treat them with honor. There's a special place for them. So really be careful in how you talk about modesty because it's not about covered up. It's about honors. Treat them with special honor. And look at the word. It's used in so many different ways that marriage should be, it's the same word here, time, should be honored by all. It should be treated so incredibly special that we don't dishonor it. So that's in uh, Romans 1. Uh, God gave them over to same. The word shameful here is not actually the word shameful. It's dishonorable. Uh, lust, even with women exchanging natural relationships with unnatural ones. But you'll notice, people want to go uh, that homosexuality, that same-sex attraction is the dishonorable one. It's used about all of sexuality. God calls us to have an honorable response to sexuality, to treat it with this wow kind of thing, right? Um, oh, did I do something? Did I just turn myself off? My blinker's not working. <laughs> I turned it off. Okay. Now, these are the scriptures your mama never told you. <laughs> and some of you are teenagers in here, and your mamas might want to put their, your hands over theirs, but I'm, I hope you don't. Because it's still in the Bible. Let me explain some other words that are used in the scriptures about sex. So in Proverbs 5, 18-19, it says, may you, may you be intoxicated by her love, and actually says, may you be satisfied with her breast. <laughs> yeah. So that word intoxicated literally means reeling drunk. Like in the movies, right? The can't, I can't eat. That, that's how sex is supposed to make you feel. So it is a good thing. In fact, it's a really good thing. And some of you are married, and that's not how you feel. And you're like, Jennifer, why did you bring that scripture up? Well, because that is how it's supposed to feel. It's supposed to. This is written to men about how their breasts satisfy them, your breasts. And, and so breasts are a beautiful thing, and they're supposed to satisfy one person. That's your husband, okay, that, biblically. But the main thing being, look at this beautiful word. It makes you like, right? That that's how sex should be. Um, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, don't get married. You know? And then he says, well, okay, if you're burning with passion, go ahead and get married. What does that mean? Where should the burning happen? In marriage. Right? It should make you go, I'm on fire. So it's a good thing. It causes intoxication, reeling, burning. It means set on fire, right? Proverbs 5, 15 through 18, and Song of Solomon 4, 15, uses all these other lovely words. It's all these water words. I love this. Both of those use the words cistern, fountain, spring, and well. So it should be this constantly refreshed, beautiful thing. So some of you who are married, that does not describe your sexual relationship. But it can. It can. You might need to get some help to get it there. 
Some of you are going, that totally describes my relationship. Then you ought to be teaching this class. You know, because that is what God's intention is. That it's intoxicating. That it's burning. That it makes you real. And that it's refreshing. So sex is a good thing in the Bible. Like, it's not God and sex. God actually... The song, book of Song of Solomon is the only, well, the Bible is the only world religion text that has an entire chapter, no, book, devoted to sexuality. God has prioritized sexuality, right? So we don't have to unprioritize it. Okay, if we don't talk about it, then they won't have it. <laughs> Isn't that what we do? If we just don't mention it, then they won't do it. No, actually, I think we should talk about it so that we can understand where it should be and how wonderful it is. Because what happens is, like, I work with women and men who come in and they've just gotten married and they've both remained virgins. And they come in and they think the switch is just going to go off and it's all going to work great. And then it doesn't. Because there's some messages that they got early on. Now, sometimes it does. And it works great because they remained pure. But I have really disappointed couples who have really kept their lives pure, and then all of a sudden they come into marriage and they're like, what the heck? This, I did this right. This was supposed to work. Well, there's a lot of different things that are affecting that wedding night. Um, it can be incredibly marvelous, so get lots of input before you get married so that it can be marvelous. But the reality is one of the things we have to realize is that we talk wrong about it. And so if we change how we talk about it, it can change that wedding night quite a bit. So... Here's a review. God uses sexuality as a language between us and him so that we can know him more fully. Knowing God guards and guides our sexuality. Gosh, that took me 33 minutes. To know sexuality is about an intimate connection. It's about being honorable, intoxicating, burning, reeling, refreshing. Right? Okay. Gosh, get those ones deep down. Right? Deep in your system. Such a different view. Where does it fit? It fits. Sexuality fits. Again, it's that deep, that, that deep knowing. Right? So it fits in what does it mean with us in God, that God creates us to be intimate people, and that that intimacy isn't just in marriage. Uh, it starts first with our relationship with God and then in our relationships with others. So there's a lot of research on intimacy, but I'm going to show you some scriptures on it. God knows us intimately. We know this, right? Psalm 139, he knows our thoughts. He knows when we lay down. His hand is upon us. He created our inmost being. Our frame wasn't hidden from you. I was made in the secret place. Your eyes formed my own from body. Ah, he like totally knows us. And look at these. This is partially from my list of how God feels about us. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Beloved holds us by our hand, engraves us on his palm. He carries us in his arms close to his heart. Right? We are created to be intimately connected, and that's why sexuality fits in that. And I love the Isaiah 43 is one of my favorites. You are mine. I mean, you know, each time I had a kid, and ah, gosh, it's the most amazing feeling. I'm holding them in my arms. I'm like, ah, you're mine, right? And I was just, okay, I don't know, honey, if you really want me to tell the story, but I'm going to. So we were married, I don't know, we'd already had all four kids, and we're at a family reunion, my husband and I, with all of our kids. And he's, my husband is in very good shape. I could use to get in good shape. And so he, he, he was, he was, he was uh, on the water, water skiing, and he had a life vest on. And he comes up out of the water, and it looked very nice. 
And his cousin was sitting next to me. She's a woman. And, you know, she's known him all her life. And she looks and she goes, dang. And I said, I know. I said, he's mine. Right? Jacqueline, I don't know if you even knew that story. So the reality is that's how... That's how God creates us to be intimately connected with him. He looks at you. This is the know him and get really deep in it. He looks at you and goes, she's mine. That, that like me with that baby, right? She's mine. He's mine. It's just the most amazing. That's how God looks at us. And then when we get that, again, then, then we make a lot better choices on intimacy, right? We are created to be intimately connected. But, I hope this is ready, Brian, (laughs) or whoever's running. The world's definition of intimacy is... Wise men say Only fools run Anarchy for him and for her. No matter what's going on, I'm burning with passion for you in the middle of all of this. We do tend to think that those movies that we watch, (laughs) right, that that's sexuality, that's intimacy, right? And hmm, sort of. Maybe like in early on in a relationship, uh, the, John and Karen Louie wrote I Choose Us, really, really great book, and they talk about the infatuation stage, and that's exactly what it is. But a long-term intimate connection is much, much, much more than that. <laughs> you might feel that initially, but it, you know, uh, my, my husband and I were just recently talking about this, about how, you know, okay, would we use the word in love for how we feel? I adore my husband, and I am more... I love him so much more deeply now than I did then. And I loved him then when we got married. But gosh, I like really love my husband. And that's not like, okay, we probably don't walk in the bedroom and go, you know? (laughs) Sorry to spoil that for you, but, you know, it might not happen quite like that. But the reality is that deep abiding connection, that deep abiding mind is very strongly there. So that's a good thing, right? Okay, the thing is, is that there's a lot that affects our intimacy and our sexuality. And I am combining these. I am an intimacy specialist. That's what I call myself. Um, And I think it's important because sexuality needs to fit in that piece of intimacy. Well, what affects it? So unfortunately, as lovely as all this sounds, there's a lot of things that affect sexuality. Um, 
Different types of touch, both positive and negative, affect how we view sexuality. Um, If there was not a lot of affection in your family, uh, people come in and they see me and they're having problems in their marital relationship and I ask, how's affection in your marriage? How's affection in your family? And how was affection when you were growing up? Because touch and the lack of touch can be problematic. It can actually cause problems with sexuality. And especially if there's been any kind of violating touches, Um, What will often happen is that in puberty, parents aren't sure what to do with this child that's now changing their bodies. And so I have men and women who come into my office and say that um, my dad was really affectionate when I was young, but then when I started entering the teenage years, he wasn't as affectionate. So that's actually super common where, you know, it's like, should I hug my son? I've got boobs that get in the way. You know, should should I hold my daughter on my lap? So families aren't quite sure what to do around affection as as children grow into um, their teenage years and into adulthood, and yet that's the place where, honestly, really good affection should happen, but it it doesn't always. And so guess what? That affects how we approach sexuality, not just in marriage, but even uh, in any kind of sexuality you've been involved in premaritally. Um, Some people say that they felt a discomfort with touch since they were babies that their mom would say they would kind of arch back and they always dislike touch. So that does affect how people feel about sex. I have people that um, come to see me, they're in their 50s, and they remember being a child not liking touch, and it's really caused problems in their relationships before they became Christians, in the sexual relationships they were involved in, in their marriages as disciples, and so on. So this comfort with touch, like if you're somebody that's like, still, even though you watch, who watched the hug video at the Reach conference. Anybody? Oh, go and watch the hug video. You can actually oh, send me an email and I'll send you the link. It is the funniest video about, you know, the awkward purity hug. And then the full bone bro bone crushing hug. And they show that one. And then he shows other versions of the awkward purity hug. Right? We're not quite sure what to do with touch anyway. But then if you also have a discomfort with touch just in life, it does affect things if you've had any kind of violating touches. I had a young woman, a couple, come to me um, for sex therapy, and the wife, you know, I always ask, were there any times where you were molested, where you were violated in any way, where you were sexually abused? And she was like, nope, nope, nope. And we're doing therapy, we keep doing therapy, and there, gosh, there were just different things that I was like, huh? And so as we were working on their affection, she said, well, you know, there was a time when my dad put his hands down my pants and touched my bottom. She said it was only one time. And I said, how was your development and your belief about thinking about sexuality as you matured? And it just went haywire after that. She had had so many, all internal. And it started from that one violating touch. So violating touch isn't just penetrative sexual touch. It can be somebody putting their hand on your thigh. And you're like, you don't know what to do when you're a child and you're frozen because you don't know how to respond, because this person's touching you in a way that feels violating. And then, of course, it can go all the way to sexual touch and violations by people you know. So um, violating touches absolutely affect sexuality. Um, the positive thing about touch that does affect sexuality is that touch is super positive. They actually did research studies, this is so wild, of people who were... Um, uh, recovering from surgery and recovering from cancer treatments 
and that those who had somebody there holding their hands during their recovery got better quicker. What's up with that, right? So touch, affection, it's super important. So it affects sexuality negatively and positively. Um, It affects our life negatively and positively. Um, I've talked about this a little bit already, family upbringing. This is a big one. If they're not comfortable, families aren't comfortable talking about sex. So I did a research study um, with women to, to study their experiences of shame in connection with sexuality. And that was actually one of my, I, uh, there are some of you here who were part of that study, and you don't even know this, that it won a national award. Um, so the reality is every single one of the women involved in that study, their families had discomfort talking around sexuality. Either they never had the talk, or they had the talk once, and then they never talked about it afterwards. Or the, uh, the mom or the dad would say, here's a book. Or they would go to the class at school and they would come home and the parent would say, how is it? And that's the, so there's just not an openness in the family. And so that's a real issue. Sometimes all by itself, not talking openly about sexuality causes shame. Even if you don't experience violating sexuality, just not talking about it makes it taboo and then can cause shame. Um, for multiple reasons, and we'll look at that. Also, if you had poor examples of sexuality, so Tim actually talks about this in our book, Redeemed Sexuality, and that he was exposed to some really poor examples of sexuality, and so it affected his view um, and uh, his family members and how they comported themselves sexually. And if, you're, uh, if you were young and you explored your genitals, either masturbating or just fondling, or you were found exploring with another child, and your family had a negative response, that can affect how people view sexuality. So I, I have very worried parents. They'll call me and say, ah, my kids are doing this, or my, their cousins were doing this with them, or they were found doing this at school. And there's this balance between, gosh, this is actually kind of normal touch, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, that doesn't mean the child might not feel like they wanted it to stop and they couldn't find the words to say it. But the reality is, Almost all kids explore their bodies at some point sexually. And how a family member, a parent especially, a caregiver, responds to that really affects uh, the development of sexuality. And then, of course, gosh, we could go on and on about media, right? TV, the Internet, uh, the earlier and earlier that people are exposed to pornography now absolutely affects. And then I do have clients who's... who's, um, Adults, male or female family members, would view pornography while the kids were in the room. So they started off being exposed to it super early, let alone people's own uh, going after pornography, which we're also going to talk about a little bit later. So the other thing is if you've already had sexual experiences and you're not married, how you evaluated those, how you felt about those, if they were violating, if you felt like you couldn't say no or you were just doing it because if you didn't, he wouldn't like you anymore – So how people view their sexual history and, of course, like I said, if there's any sexual abuse or trauma. So these things in people's growing up years very much affect how they view sexuality. I call it the sexual self-schema. Schema is the way we think. So our self-schema is the way we think about ourselves. So our sexual self-schema is the way we think about ourselves as a sexual person. And it's funny, uh, the opening page of our book says, you are a sexual person. The book is written to teens, singles, campus students, and parents. 
<laughs> and those first three, we don't think, you're not a sexual person. You're a teen. You're a single. You're a campus student. And the opening line of the book says, you are a sexual person. Just to let you know, right? Maybe to more let the people know in your life, <laughs> right? You are and you have been and you've been thinking things. I have parents, they'll say, oh, no, I don't have my talk with my kid about, you know, how babies are born until they're older, like 12, 15. And I'm like, gosh, you know what? They've been hearing about it explicitly since they walked into kindergarten or earlier. So the earlier, you know, earlier you tell them, the better. And we're going to barely talk about that today. I love this. I just had the Facts of Life talk with our son, and I can't believe what I learned. Right? I mean, (laughs) they're already learning stuff. And so if you wait, I mean, who more do you want them to hear it from than you? Right? Because they're going to hear all kinds of messages on the playground. Okay? All right, what else? So how families, um, some other things that affect sexuality is how families interact around the body. Um, Parental attitudes about the body and sex. So, you know, if parents talk either like jokingly and openly and kind of crudely and dishonorably about sex, that will affect how people feel. Women who I work with that... um, I've got two women right now who they are having a challenging time reaching orgasm. They're married. I just said the orgasm word. And um, they're having a challenging time reaching orgasm. And they they have no sexual violations, no sexual abuse, no sexual touch. But when I did a little bit deeper of a check, they grew up hearing the men in their life, specifically in both of these cases, a father figure, make negative comments about women's bodies as they were walking by. And they were young girls, and they would hear these negative comments about people's bodies. And so they had a hard time accepting their own body, and so they had a hard time feeling good about their husband liking their body because they would connect their godly husband's enjoyment of their body with this view. I mean, okay, all the movies, all the TV shows, right? A girl walks by, and in the movie they show the guys all do this. Well, we don't have to see it in the movies. It's, it's everywhere. And it's not just a guy thing. Okay, who knows about the lawsuit that just, that just happened here with a woman here in the United States. She took a picture of an older woman in the, bath, in the changing room, right? It's not just a guy thing, the shaming stuff about bodies. Women shame women about their bodies. One of the biggest things that happened is that oh, you go to a church party, a church party, and you all do it, and you're sitting around talking about, what's your diet? Well, you know, if you eat this without a fork, it has no calories. You've said it, haven't you? There's a positive way we shame each other about our bodies, too. My girl, you're looking good. How much have you lost? But you don't say that when they're gaining weight. So we say, we think, oh, that's a real compliment. But you know what she's thinking? What did you think about me when I was heavier? And then when she gets heavier, she's like, oh, dang, what are you thinking about me now? Right? So women can unintentionally, but sometimes intentionally, like in this case with this this, this gal, So it's not just physical families, I'm talking about physical families, but even in our spiritual family, we can shame the body and shame women for their bodies, right? 
So the body and that all affects sexuality, general body image, um, how parents talked about sexuality, um, how, so this is about puberty. So this often happens where girls that might develop earlier, people will go, wow, you're, you're developing early. And so what will happen is, yeah, so what will happen is then she feels like, look at, you know, I want to display it. People say positive things about me. Or this is the majority of the time she wants to cover them up. So I have the majority of women that come to see me anyway, and they wear very baggy clothes because they feel uncomfortable with their breasts being displayed before everybody. Um, it actually does happen with young men as well uh, when, they're, when they're, they're, uh, people make negative comments during puberty, during the changes in their body, and they make either negative comments about their lack of muscles. It's usually lack of muscles for men, and for women it's the growth of their breasts. And, of course, if there's any body fat, Oh, my, my mother, okay, my mom just died, and she, she was lovely. She was really fun, but she, and she was never really mean. But one day she said one thing, and it stuck with me forever. I'm getting out of the jacuzzi. I'm 19 years old, and she looks up at me, and she goes, where did you get those thighs? She goes, she goes that must be from your dad's side of the family. <laughs> and I'm like, Mom! And my mother was never, my mother was actually a bit overweight. And, and, and she always, she would let us play with her stomach. And we called it her Pillsbury Doughboy stomach. And we would poke it. You know, so she was, she wasn't negative. I don't know why she said that. Because she was never like, but isn't that stupid? That stupid comment hung with me like forever, right? So it could be something simple. I had a woman who, her father, this is kind of hard to tell, this story. Uh, her father would place her obese sister on a scale in front of the whole family. I know, I know, right? That's an extreme case, but we do that. We do that in so many different levels, so many small, minute comments. So you're going to feel really paranoid next time you say something nice to some lady who's lost some weight. But be aware of what I call fat talk. You know, how many calories is this kind of talk when you're at parties? Now you're going to be paranoid for the rest of your life. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go through here because I've already said all that. Um, The media gives us unrealistic expectations. They do influence our sexual relationships. It causes self-consciousness. It causes people to conceal their body. um, If they had those families' comments, criticism, teasing about their weight, it affects sexuality. Um, It makes them avoid romantic relationships and sexual relationships, even in marriage. This is, did you, I don't know if you knew about this. So this was the picture they published of her on the right. And she got ticked. And she said, uh-uh. And she said, this is the actual picture. And she made them publish it. This is what I actually look like. But look what they did. Like, she's actually a very pleasant-looking woman. She's about 48 here, I think. And she looks great. And that's what they made her look like. And she said no. And she made them publish the correction. Look at this. We know this, right? You all do it. Admit it. You have the filters on your phone that take off the blemishes on the face, right? So we all do it to some extent, but you have to be aware that this picture that the media gives us of what your body is supposed to look like is actually incorrect. It's not even real. Look at that. Like, what's wrong with her? Right? So the idea of beauty is so, so affected. Yeah, the one on the right is the changed one. Like there's something wrong with her jaw. Right? So why is this important? Let's read all this out loud. 
I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Okay, this is important. Those words there, I looked them up in the Hebrew because I like doing that. Fearfully and wonderfully. And what it means, it's the same word that says that we're supposed to fear God and revere him. In other words, we're supposed to look at God and go, (gasps) right? He says, I can't even walk by you because I'm so, you'll just fall over, right? So he says, put a veil over your face because God is so, (gasps) that God says when you look at your body, you're supposed to go, (gasps) and you don't. You look in your mirror and you go, right? I point here because we all do it here. From here to here, this part, right? And God says, no, your body's amazing. We look at our body and we go, fat. And we go, you know, fat or whatever, fat, right? Or whatever. You don't like your nose. We look at it negatively and God goes, no, no, no. You're supposed to look at your body and go, wow. I, when I was in my, uh, my doctorate, I had to take a class on the body and, and, and psychology. And we studied all these amazing things. And I, when I really learned how the eyeball works, we did a family night on the eyeball. Because the eyeball is amazing. I mean, okay, so it says that Jesus healed that guy like that, right? He, he made him see. Do you know what had to happen to make that eyeball see? All the neurons that had to work and the connections between the eyeball and the brain and the brain being able to put the pictures together. No wonder the guy goes, they look like trees. You know, I mean, so Jesus is like, let's do it again. So the the eyeball is amazing, right? Our bodies are amazing. And if you don't, if this is an issue for you, it will affect how you approach sexuality. It'll make you either display your body it'll make you hide your body it'll make you not be able to enjoy sex when you can because it'll make you stiff and insecure i mean i work with married couples where we do exercises on the body we do mirror exercises and they do them in their home we actually started out in my office but um in the home they actually touch and so the wife will say to the husband one part of my body i like is and they really have a hard time saying what they like about their bodies And then they say, one part of my body I don't like is, and they take their spouse's hand and put it on those parts of their body to just practice going, I'm going to put your hand in this part I don't like. And then I'm going to talk about it. Because it causes people to get all tense around sexuality in their marital relationships. And for those of you who are singles and teenagers, why in the heck am I telling you this now? Because if you don't deal with your body image issues now, it can affect your future. So deal with it now, right? As much as you can. But let me tell you, it's going to come out when you're married. It just does. So be aware that it's an ongoing growth to believe this scripture. That when I uh, look at my waist that I don't like, wait, wait, there's a, there's a kidney under there. And there's, there's a liver under there. And oh my goodness, the liver is amazing because we are fearfully and wonderfully made, right? Okay. If you have any, I already talked to you about this, any kind of experiences in the family It can cause shame, but there are also things that cause shame, and that's when we have rigid rules that have no explanation. So that's actually one of the problems with talking about modesty without explaining modesty, because um, we, we say don't wear those shorts, don't wear that shirt, but we don't explain why, and so I'm going to hopefully explain why today. Um, 
that if you have viewed pornography and if you have masturbated, which is probably the majority of people in this room, if it's not talked about, if it, it's usually an issue of great amount of shame, even as people mature and as they get into their older years. And then, this is a big one, people will often feel a lot of shame about arousal. In other words, well, no, I'm not going to, in other words, I'm going to show it to you. Okay, we've already talked about sexual trauma um, but it is important just to say that if you've experienced any kind of sexual trauma, it is important to get help with how to have a healthy sexual relationship because it absolutely can affect things. I, Lordy. Okay. Using correct terms. All right. Everybody say toe. toe. Finger. Finger. Leg. Leg. Eyebrow. Eyebrow. Pinky. Pinky. Belly button. Belly button. Nose. Vagina. Oh, my gosh. All right. Say toe. Clitoris. Ah, you just said it. Pinky. Vulva. Toenail. Penis. Oh, my gosh. You just said it. Okay. But you notice we're more uncomfortable with the sexual terms. But they're just parts of the body. Like your toe, like your pinky, like your toenail, like your eyebrow. It's really important that when you teach children about sexuality, use the right terms. Not their woo-woo and their dinky and their ding-ding. <laughs> I have this list. It's actually in our book. I was so amazed at all the words that people use. Right? Hoo-ha. That's a big one. I, I, I was in England, and I said, we were sitting at a table having dinner, and I said, oh, I forgot my fanny pack. And all of the people at the table went, you're what? And I was like, I forgot my fanny pack. And they all start laughing. They're all disciples. And, and they start laughing. I'm like, what's so funny? And they're like, well, in England, the fanny is the front part of the female. And I was like, oh. They call it a bum pack. So I was like, oh, I have to go get my bum pack. Okay, let's get that clear. But so in England, they call the girls parts of fanny. Well, the Bible doesn't really have words, but we do have words medically, and I recommend you call them the correct anatomical term. Vagina, vulva, clitoris. We'll go on when we look at it, right? Okay. It is important when families talk about sex, they teach their children about what to do with sexual arousal, which we're going to talk about, that they talk openly about all the subjects. Masturbation, and this is important. Everybody say the word masturbation. Masturbation. Oh, gosh, that's so uncomfortable, right? That's a whole other level of discomfort. Everybody say pornography. Pornography. Okay, we have to get used. Don't just say so. Do you ever touch yourself? Well, that might, that might work. That's true. That's what it is. But don't shy away from saying masturbation. Actually, I had a young man who uh, read my whole book. He's one of my readers. And so the book, by the way, it's not the final book. This is the advanced reader's version. You're the only people who can get it right now. Um, (laughs) um, And what I would like you to do if you buy it is I need you to pay attention to my email address and send me your thoughts. So I have a young man who just read it all in one day. And I said, what did you think? And he gave me his thoughts. And one of the things he said is emphasize to everybody, not just about the body parts, but about the sexual acts, masturbation, pornography, and, okay, oral sex. Everybody say oral sex. Oral sex. Those of you, I'm sorry, that are 12 and 14, you might not know what that means. But, no, you probably do. You've actually probably already heard about it. And you were wondering, and you've never asked your mom. 
I was doing a talk with one of my kids, and I, they were seven years old. Dad did the talk first. I followed up, and I said, do you have any questions? Nope. <laughs> you look like you have a question. Nope. <laughs> it's okay to ask a question if you have a question. Do you put your mouth on dad's penis? Seven years old. I am so glad he asked me. And let me tell you what I answered. I said, well, God made every part of our bodies. And when you're married, every part of your body, whoo, I'm emotional, can touch any part of their body. And that's my, that was my answer. And he was like, okay. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't give him a picture, but I explained that if that happens, it's okay. Any part when you're married of your body can touch any part of theirs. Use the right terms. Talk openly. It helps, right? And in the teen years, make sure to use it. I love this. So he's coming out of his sex ed class. <laughs> Am I glad to get that straightened out? Now I can go home and explain it to my dad. All right? Don't let him learn it just in class. Some of you, that might be your experience. You might be teenagers here and you haven't talked openly with your parents. And I actually had a teenager in Singapore send me a question saying, um, how do I talk to my parents about sex? They want to talk. Don't do this. If you have any questions, come and ask me. Don't do that. Say, let me share with you my, especially when they're teenagers, let me share with you the challenges I had and the questions I had. Say, tell me your questions. If they can't, open up a book and say, are any of these your questions? And let them pick one. That's actually what we would do, is we actually handed the book over and said, anything on here, pick one. So sometimes they're embarrassed. You have to actually open up the topic. All right. I unfortunately do not have time to do this, but this is how sex develops. There you go. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Yeah. I'll show it to you one more time. There you go. I already talked a lot about that. Okay. The one question I am just going to briefly, this comes up a lot because I specialize in sexuality, is how does same-sex attraction develop? Um, are you born with it? It's like the song, right? Uh, Guy Hammond, of course, please, please, please buy his book. It doesn't matter if you're same-sex attracted. It doesn't matter if you have a family member who is or isn't. Buy his book anyway. Caring Beyond the Margins, we have it for sale. It's 15 bucks. It'll be the best $15. He is the most spiritual man. Thank God for Guy Hammond. Guy Hammond is a saint, yes. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I just cannot tell you how grateful. Um, this is how his book starts. And this mess is so big and so deep and so tall. We cannot pick it up. There is no way at all. You know, sometimes sexuality gets like this, where it's just so hard to figure it out, right? And I'm like, guy, thank you for saying that. You know, sometimes the mess is, ah, uh, and we can't get through it. So the big question is, is it biological? The APA Association, which is very gay-affirming, says we have absolutely no proof. Okay, so if you have a question, there's nothing to support that it's biological. But that's not really the real question. 
the real question people have is how do people get there? Or, you know, is it nature or nurture? I'm just going to briefly talk about that because you're, often people are wondering. Um, you might be wondering. You might be same-sex attracted and think, where does it come from? You might have a family member who is, and you wonder, what the heck? How did that happen? Um, you know, people come from very, very healthy, happy family backgrounds and still will sometimes have same-sex attraction. How does that happen? Well, typically, this is straight out of your house's work, just to, just to explain with same-sex attraction. There's biological sex, so that's your DNA. There's gender identity, so that's whether you call yourself a boy or a girl, or of course now in uh, Oregon, they just passed a law that you can put uh, uh, non-gendered or something like that on, the, on, your, on your driver's license. Um, persistence and direction of attraction. So that means I'm noticing early on that I'm more drawn to this sex and then it persists. And then he talks about volition, which is the actual behavior, which is the either like viewing same-sex um, pornography or engaging in same-sex behavior. And then uh, putting a value on it. So what's really great about Yarhouse's work is he talks about those who have uh, spiritual beliefs and spiritual values, and they will then apply them to how they're feeling and thinking about sexuality. And I don't know what that 68 means, so I need to look at this. Okay, 307. All right, so the real issue uh, that he does a great job of explaining in his books that are kind of difficult to read because he's a researcher, Yar House is, but uh, just to bring it down to an understandable level, he talks about how uh, people have to decide over time which one of these pieces they're going to put more weight to. You know, is it the, their DNA? Is it how they feel about their gender? Is it about um, their attractions? Is, are they going to put more weight to that decision or to the actual behaviors? Or are they going to put it more to the values that they have and the beliefs that they have? Um, and that will decide what they then identify as. So very briefly, Yarhouse talks about it starts out with identity confusion and crisis. So that's where they start feeling those things. Girls will say that they have breasts, but they feel uncomfortable with their breasts. Boys will say they don't feel like a boy. So that's the identity confusion and crisis. And then it goes to where they start putting meanings on it, that it's wrong, especially if they grow up in religious homes, it's wrong. And then it's right, depending on their background. So that would be what you would call they start thinking with a valuative framework. So that's where they are their beliefs and their values affect it. And then, this is what's happening right now. This is actually just in the news, where they do an identity foreclosure. So what that means is, at a super early age, when they're still growing, they go, I am. They put a name on it and say, I am. So right in the news right now, there's a 13-year-old Mormon girl that just stood up and said, I'm a lesbian. She's 13. And I'm like, dang, girl, you've got 12 more years before your brain is finished developing. Like, you know, and your body hasn't even probably gone through puberty. Give yourself some time. And I don't know her, and if this gets recorded, I'm sorry. But 13, come on, there's a lot more happening with your body and your brain. Lisa shared some very concerning stories. We have them in our community where people make decisions. I mean, I had a woman come up to me, and she said, my daughter is 16. She wants to get a nose job. What should I do? She's, she said it just destroys how she feels about herself. And I said, gosh, she's 16. You know, all of that is hard in those years. I would recommend that she wait until she's an adult, and she can decide if she wants to have that done. And so she's an adult, she's married, and she still has that beautiful nose, thank God. Um, so, you know, we foreclose, and or there's not an expansion where there's a uh, let's see what this means about me. 
And then there's an identity reappraisal, where do I accept it or reject it? This is more when they're coming into the middle school and teen years, sometimes coming into college. And then um, he talks about identity synthesis, where either they choose the gay identity, I'm gay, or they disidentify with the gay identity and say, I might have these attractions, but I am choosing, I like the last line, individuals who experience same-sex attraction but find the gay identity and lifestyle isn't, isn't consistent with their religious identity. My identity is a disciple, and so the gay identity doesn't match with my religious identity. So what's important about this is don't shame people's process of figuring out their sexuality. It's really important. If they say these things at 13 years old, give them some room and some space to talk about it. Um, Talk about it in a calm, matter-of-fact, non-reactionary, respectful. We are all trying to figure out our sexuality. It doesn't matter if it's same sex or opposite sex. We're all trying to figure it out. As married people, we're trying to figure it out, right? Check your own convictions in your heart. Check what you're hearing in the media and really compare it to your beliefs because there's a big difference between having attraction and acting on it. We all have attractions that are inappropriate. And then we all have to make decisions on how we're going to live. So, okay. Let me just go on here. So this is very popular right now. There are videos out there on the gay Christian debate. I don't have time to go into this today. I would be happy to send you a paper that I'm in the middle of writing in response to this debate. It's a Matthew Vines video in his book, God and the Gay Christian. I'd be happy to send that to you, if that can be helpful to you. Just don't scoff at it. Don't scoff at that question. That, you know, People will say, you can be gay and you can be a Christian. It, it doesn't match what the scriptures teach, but don't scoff at the question. In fact, you might need to go dig yourself in the scriptures to see what do the scriptures say about uh, same-sex attraction. Basically, my goal, this is mine. These are the scriptures that help me. 1 Peter 3, always be prepared to give an answer. I, when, I get, when people come to me with different questions about sexuality, I don't want to just pop off the answer. I want to really make sure that I'm answering them in a way that's helpful. Those who oppose them, he must gently instruct. I'm going to zip ahead to, oh, sorry, all the wrong things the church does. Okay. Why? All right. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, right? That includes your vagina. And that includes your penis. So, let's look at it. There it is. All right. Just so you know what it's called. So, I don't have a little red thingy, but um, the big black hole in the middle is the vagina. Right above it, it's the urethra. Most women don't know where their pee comes out. Boys, it's really clear. It comes out at the end of their penis, right? Girls, hopefully. Um, (laughs) There's a little hole right above your vagina, and that's where your urethra comes out from the bladder and the pee comes out. It doesn't come out of your vagina. In all actuality, all through my adulthood, I wasn't really quite sure about that. Okay? So, not all through, but way into it. Then right above it is the clitoris. So that's the the clitoris. So you think of the, um, the penis. Let's look at the penis for a minute. Yep, there it is. So the penis has a head, and it has a shaft, Right? Well, when you look at the clitoris, we tend to think it's that little knobby thing at the top, and that's all it is, but actually it's quite a bit more. The clitoris has a head and a shaft and legs. So the, the crura come around the vagina. So th- that's how your body is made. It's really important that you know this, and let me explain to you why you should know this, no matter if you're married, single, teen, anything. 
when people talk to you about ah, purity, all right? Oh, my gosh, Jennifer's going there. I thought she wasn't going to go there. I'm just going to go there for a little bit. Okay. Let me ask you this. Have you ever watched a movie, read a book, thought a comment, and your vagina started throbbing? Thank you for admitting that. Do you know what that is? That's blood. That's blood flow coming to the vulva. Blood flow, I know, oh, right? You actually have two flaps of skin called the lips, the major and minor lips, and there are blood vessels in there, and the blood flow comes there, and it starts to throb and tingle. It's not a sin to actually have that reaction. What we do with it is the question, okay? You're going to see something, as long as you're not intentionally reading it or seeing it, it happens. And this is important to realize that sometimes you'll wake up with that sensation and you'll go, oh my gosh, I shouldn't be, oh my gosh, so am I in sin? No, it's a biological, actually that response, the blood flow, is the body getting ready to have sex. When is that supposed to happen? So the marriage bed should be kept pure and honorable. It's supposed to happen in marriage. But it is your body. So when your vagina throbs like that, you know what you should say? Wow! I have an amazing vagina. Right? Right? I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Right? Now I have certain beliefs about what I'm going to do with that sensation. All right? But the first step is to say, oh... That's so amazing. Now what am I going to do with that? I might need to go take a walk. I might need to call a friend. You know, because I'm not going to act on that because I'm saving that for a certain day. But our guilt around arousal is super problematic. It happens with married couples. I'll have men who, I'm just going to say it, they're watching and up comes um, Victoria's Secret commercial, right? I mean, just like, it's like, gosh, really? And it's right there. And I have wives that will notice that their, that their husband becomes erect and they get furious, right? Oh, my goodness. You know, he's looking at that and his penis is getting hard. It is a biological reaction. Actually, the, the throbbing in your vagina and the blood flow to the penis is, is controlled by the lower spine, It's not controlled by the upper brain until a little bit later. The initial reaction is, you know, when you're at the doctor and they hit your knee and it goes, woo, it's called a knee-jerk reaction. That's what's happening. When your vulva goes, woo, woo, when the penis, it's the blood flow to the penis and it becomes hard. That is a knee-jerk reaction initially controlled by the lower spine. Then, now I'm going to put my values into practice and I'm going to fast forward. I'm going to skip that commercial. So my values come into play. But that initial biological reaction is a, wow, okay, God made my body. I am going to miss a lot of stuff today. I would be happy. Oh, gosh, I need to talk about that. Um, How many more minutes do I have? I have all day. I want to have a question and answer period, so I am not going to do everything I prepared, which I knew that was going to happen. 
But um, I'm going to go for about a few more minutes, and then we're going to have a question and answer period. So please write your stuff down. I'm not going to get to all your questions today. I'm going to get to some of them. But I want you to know the book, actually, that you can buy today, it's not finished. I still have a couple more chapters to write, and I would love to write a chapter based on your questions. So write them down, and because actually all, there is a chapter based on questions that singles and teens and campus students have. That's the name of one of the chapters. And it's all from disciples. So I would love to continue doing that. Um, but let me just hit some things. This is one of the single biggest things that both young girls ask me and married women ask me, is does sex hurt and should it hurt? And I just don't want to forget to go here today because... For some women, they have a slight little flap of skin right at the opening to the vagina that um, may tear if they've never had sex before, and it may cause some bleeding, it may cause some discomfort. The majority of women have already ridden bikes or ridden horses or been gymnasts, and that has already torn earlier in their life, and there is no pain the first time they have sex that's due to that. Now, if somebody hasn't ever had sex before, which is often sometimes the case, then yes, it can be just because those tissues haven't had that kind of exposure. And I tell all young married couples, take a great lubricant with you on your honeymoon. The reality is for those who are married, so often what girls will ask me is, it was, I was immoral, I had sex before I should have, before marriage, and it was awful, is it going to be like that in marriage? And they think, no, I'm going to get married to a disciple and it'll all be great. And then they get married and then it's painful. Well, sometimes it can be a sexual pain disorder, and most people don't know. For those of you who are married, your gynecologist might be telling you that you just need an estrogen cream, and it's actually usually not an estrogen cream. It's a testosterone cream that you need. So just a little teeny bit of sex should not hurt. If it does, go get some help after you get married. (laughs) No, actually, right before you get married. The reality is um, sex can be painful, but it shouldn't be. Biologically, if it is painful, that means there might be a a medical reason that you need to actually have um, checked. You you can't just go see any doctor. You have to see a sexual medicine specialist. Okay, so I already talked about that, right? Um, Here's the knee-jerk reaction. We just jumped right in, right? And then I'm I'm just going to show you. Oh, I wanted you to do this. Okay, we're going to do this for two minutes. All right. No, we're not. We don't have time. This is... Do you want to do it? Okay. Everybody stand up. And the reason why I'm having you stand up is because you might not be standing next to somebody that you know really well. Go stand next to somebody you know really well. Okay, Okay. so secondly, only those of you, you might be in a group of, of, don't do more than two people, don't do more than three people, okay, so break up, don't do more than three, you you might have somebody that just wants to observe, it's a little dangerous when you just observe because then you feel like you're not, the other people are like, I wonder what she's thinking, so I encourage you all to at least answer the first two questions. Okay, this is what I want you to do, is just start off, when I say go, you're going to say to each other, how did you learn about sex growing up? So this is about the talk, right? And then, did your family discuss sex at all? Just do those two. On your marks, get set, go. Okay, wind that up, wind that up. <laughs> 
take your seats. Okay, I have a question for you. How was that? Liberating. Great. Enlightening. Was it uncomfortable a little bit? A little bit scary? A little bit like, oh, seriously, you're going to make me do this right here, right? Okay, so again, if you want these, I will send them to you. Sit down with a friend. This is actually in the book. Sit down with a friend, somebody you trust, and have a mutual conversation where both of you answer this. It just opens up the door. You just start talking, right? Start talking. Okay. Um, this is what you thought you were coming to was about purity, right? <laughs> I call it the pursuit of holiness. And I just want to end with a couple things on this before we go into questions. we got to really think about how we feel about purity. Um, we live in the United States. Many of you, hold up your water bottles. Hold them up. Oh, that, isn't that goofy? Look at that. Look at that. Right? Some of you brought it with you. My clients walk in with these big old things into their appointments with me. Right? I'm like, okay. Right? We live in a country with purified water. How do we feel about that water? It's like the best thing ever, right? I have a friend. She just became a Christian. Actually, Sierra, where are you? Sierra, where are you? There she is. Sierra reached out to my friend Sophie, and Sophie came to church, and I studied the Bible with Sophie. Uh, she, lives, she grew up in China, and she showed me the picture of the river by her house. Solid green, kind of a yellow green. Solid, thick yellow green. That's the river by their house. We live in a country with pure water, and we go, ah, right? What's it like when you've been, I, I went bike riding this morning along the coast with my husband, and um, we got back, and I, you know, you take the drink of water, and you go, like those commercials, ah, right? That's how we should feel about purity. It's like, wow, this is like the best thing ever. I'm really glad I'm not drinking that water, right? And, you know, sometimes we do those little things where you put all these things, and this is what messes up your life. But really, think about it in terms of how amazing that bottled water is that we have in this country. We have a huge lawsuit with Flint, Michigan, right, around the water there. It's a real issue in the United States if you don't have purified water. It's not an issue in the rest of the world. They don't have it in many, many places. We do. Wow. And so staying pure, we often think of it as a deprivation rather than as a privilege and a benefit. It's an amazing thing. Uh, look at some of the things we do. What we tend to do when we're talking about purity is we make it a list of don'ts. Don't get pregnant. Don't wear that. Don't watch that. And don't do that. And we'll talk about sex when you're married. That's what we tend to do, right? And that's that, what this is. This is the trite answers. You know, true love waits. I'm sorry. That sounds like some old movie, doesn't it? True love waits, right? When you're talking about purity, watch the, the trite answers we give. Those who have sex before marriage get STDs and end up divorced. I'm sorry, but there's a lot of married people who had sex before marriage and they don't have STDs. And they stayed married. In fact, almost every married couple that is actually doing well that comes to my office had sex before marriage. I'm not advocating it. 
I'm not saying that's what you should do. But don't use that as a reason to try to scare people into not having sex. Because after a while, she's going to figure it out. Right? That not everybody gets pregnant. And not everybody gets an STD. And people stay married even when they do it. That's not going to motivate somebody for purity. So it's, those things are all true. Like, for instance, okay, for some of us, we decided to become a disciple and we were like... Hell was a reason. I don't want to go there. Right? But I can't stay in that place of hell being my motivation. So it's important. Sometimes that will get things going, but you can't stay there. Yes. All right, we're now going to collect. I was supposed to do that after physiology, and I forgot. Okay, go ahead and hand in your cards, and I'm going to go over them in about two minutes. So I love this. And try to do it as quietly as possible. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual morality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. There's that word. There's that honorable word, right? So, ladies, I want you to watch some things. Be very careful about the romantic movies and novels you're reading because they can give you an... I mean, I read... uh, Probably thousands growing up. Then I became a disciple and I didn't read them forever. And then as a married woman, I read a few. And I was like, what am I doing? Right? Because they had sexual scenes in them. So what I do now is I still enjoy a chick flick and I pass through it. There are, I, oh, I have to admit something. I love science fiction. Hi. I love science fiction. And I love... Um, the undead. Aren't that just so weird? I read the zombies and the... I do, I'm admitting, okay? I like science fiction and I like all of that stuff. Magic powers. I love it when women can go... And the water rises up, you know? So I'll read these books and I really like these powerful women there in the books. And then they throw the sex scene in there. Like, what's the up with that, right? So I fast forward it. I go and I take that section. It's not a sex novel, but it'll throw it in there, and I pass it. Protect your purity by what you put in, okay? Watch the fantasizing. Uh, We're not going to talk about the line. You can read about it. That means where's the line when you're dating. I'm sorry for those of you who are dating. I'm not going to talk about that line. Um, Is mutual masturbation an issue, and is it purity? So let me tell you this. Sex is about, so this is about young couples, uh, young people who are not married, can they bring each other to orgasm without actually having intercourse? Is that called sexual immorality? Okay, sex in the Bible is about intimate connection, right, between you and another person, and where is it supposed to occur? It's not about just the orgasm. It's about the connection that happens. Sexuality creates that deeper, more intimate connection All orgasms do that. It causes actually a rush of chemicals to your brain. Sex feels really good. It actually causes all kinds of lovely sensations to your body. There's just a time and a place for them. And so what the literature, they actually have research studies that will say it's okay to uh, masturbate. It's okay to actually um, mutually masturbate when you're not married yet. Or that's on a religious term. People do that. It actually um, ups their oxytocin. It helps their serotonin, their uh, norepinephrine, and their dopamine, and it helps them be more mentally healthy. Uh, it helps their stress levels. 
So that's what all of the research says. But the reality is it's an opposite of actually how research is supposed to happen. The way they did that research is that they, they said that um, if, you, if, you, um, if you have sex, it creates all those things. That's actually true. But if you don't have sex, we have no research to support that those things aren't going to happen. It's not a deprivation. So it's just there's lies in, in, the, in the articles that you read. There's lies out there, and I want you to recognize them. The research doesn't support that idea. Uh, honestly, neither does the Bible. Okay? So, if you're struggling with purity, with pornography and masturbation, put together a group. Talk about it. Get together with a group of women that support each other. I don't have time to talk to you. I am a, an addiction specialist as well, and so I, the, one of the biggest things that when people don't do well with their purity, it's because they're not in a supportive group. They're not in a group where they can talk openly about it. All right, I am done with this part, and I'm going to go to your questions. I just want to show, and don't look at these because you're going to feel really bad. Okay. <clears throat> the body is not made for sexual morality. It's not made for prostitution. It's not made for pornography. It's not made for adultery. It's not made for marital sex or for homosexual acts. The body is not made for sexual morality. God says live our lives pure. Why? Because I love this. Sorry, I want to show you this last one. You were bought at a price. You are so awesome. Right? So, let me go over some of your questions. <clears throat> I love that somebody wrote this down. I believe in liberal sex, that it's natural and if we do it with love. Love is a responsibility, being aware. Why is that wrong? Um, so this is the question that's out there. Not just... Um, in the magazines and in the books. It's in the church right now. I appreciate that somebody wrote this down. This is the question that the teenagers and the singles and the married folks have in the church. And if we don't address it, we're not helping anybody. So the reality is, um, thank you, sex is about love. And sex is very loving. The, re the, the, the thing that I always advise people to do is go look at we, we tend to think if that we have this, this – oh, gosh, this is the paper I'm in the middle of writing, so I'm not going to say this very well right now. But we have this idea of if it doesn't harm anybody, how can it be wrong? But the thing to remember is that's not God's guidelines. That's not how he defines sin even. Um, when you study even the Old Testament, and they have all these like funky things that you were supposed to do about how you were supposed to dress and how you were supposed to do the, the rituals. Like, what was all that about? What, and, and they got in trouble. There was, there was you know, punishments and consequences if they didn't obey these things. And they weren't wrong. You don't have nowadays. We don't even have to follow those laws. It's not about the laws themselves. It's about submitting self to God and saying, what's your plan? You know, I could go into more. And I really, I think the main thing I want to say about this card is uh, good for you, that you wrote it. I, I Actually, I would love it. You might not want to email me because then your name will be on it. But um, I hope you can go. It will be posted on Guy's website. The answer to this question in more detail would be posted on Guy's website, Guy Hammond's website, Strength and Weakness. And it will be also posted on mine. So there's a quick, quick quick answer to a very big question. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that it was controlled by the lower spine, and at what point does it get controlled by your brain? Well, 
I love that. Almost immediately. The initial response is the lower spine. And then, because your brain is incredibly smart, signals go up your nerves into the brain immediately. And that's actually why then um, men who have erectile dysfunction, they'll actually initially have an They'll be erect, and then they lose their erection very quickly because the brain gets involved sometimes. Sometimes it's also biological, but sometimes that the worry and the anxiety gets involved. So the brain actually almost immediately gets involved. It's the initial reaction that I want you to know, that throbbing, that tingling, and then you go, ah, there it is. My vagina is wonderful. Now what am I going to do? Okay, so it is automatic. If you did, this is the second look. Like um, you see a picture, right? If you take the second look, that's that's. That's the same kind of idea. The throbbing and the tingling is totally just your body. The God made it. It's wonderful. Taking that second look, meaning actually now doing something to continue that throbbing and tingling, that's the second look. It's the same idea of, of not taking, using your values and your beliefs to decide what to do from that point on. Oh, you bold person, you. I know there are young people in this audience, but you know what? They already have heard about it. Is I, the two questions that I get from married couples, and I don't think this is from a married person, is, is anal sex okay and is oral sex okay? Um, you're going to hear different things in the church. The problem with anal sex is that um, there are capillaries in the anal passages that can be torn. There's actually quite a bit of damage that's done in homosexual acts. It's a, it's a real issue for going to the doctor for those involved in homosexual sex. But even in marital sex, um, anal sex can cause damage because the vagina has completely different tissues. Let me just explain it to you. <clears throat> the, the skin of the vagina has rugae. So what that means is it's, it, it, um, it's like an accordion. Okay? It, 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 that's why babies can go through it because the skin actually stretches and more can, can move through. The anal tissues are not made that way. Okay, so... Um, if it's, it's not, there's not a, the thing that I tell people is that there's not a scripture. Uh, this is true about masturbation. There's no scripture in the Bible that says you can't masturbate. There's no scripture. People ask me that. What I teach is there's an overarching view of sexuality, and you have to say, does this fit? So for married couples, especially when they ask about anal sex, we talk about, I talk about if there, if there are anybody who doesn't want to do it. Okay, if it bothers somebody's conscience, if it brings up trauma for them, then it's problematic. Also, if there's any medical complications. But in the end, each couple does have to decide what they're going to engage in sexually. So there you go. People don't like it when I don't give a yes or no answer. Oh, lovely. Thank you, thank you. Um, Right, so breast cancer. If you're a breast cancer survivor, I'm not quite sure fully. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a survivor in that procedure. Um, what advice would you give? So um, the main thing, because I do, I, I actually lead, I actually teach at breast cancer survivor meetings down in San Diego in the hospital. And I teach about sexuality. And some of the people are single and some of them are married. And the single people are often asking these questions, like, okay, so when, what, how much this will affect things? So what happens with um, sexuality is controlled by your, is affected by your hormones, your estrogen and your testosterone. And so, yes, it can affect because, because of the chemicals that are used 
in cancer treatment. It um, can often send the ovaries um, into, uh, or either the ovaries are removed, and so then there's no testosterone and estrogen being made in the body. And it does affect the elasticity of the tissues in the female body. And so you can get treatment for the pain that is associated with the, the lower hormones that are connected. Can people have great sexual relationships even after um, all cancers, including breast cancers? They can. Um, that's actually the work that I do, is I work with people on how to have an enjoyable sex life even after surgery and after cancer and after cancer treatment. Oh, I love this. Should dating couples kiss? So I was, um, I was engaged. Before I married my husband, I was engaged to another man. Uh, we were on staff together in Tucson, and um, we were in the car, and um, he, we were talking. He was holding my hand, and he did this, right? Everything in my body went, right? <laughs> right? We talked, I talked about it with the woman discipling me, and she was like, well, and... Okay, so, okay, it was a proverbial situation, slow down the dating relationship. So I wouldn't give that input to somebody right now. I would say, oh, yeah, that's what happens. You know, it's a, that's a pretty, woo, right? You kiss and you go, wow, some kisses. Most kisses, if they're just pecs, it's more of like a, that was sweet. But if you kiss a little bit longer, your body goes, woo, right? That's kind of good, The problem is, if it leads to other things, you want to pay attention to it. Um, My husband was my first. My first time for sex was on my honeymoon. My first kiss was my wedding day. Um, That's a wonderful thing. I don't share that with you because that's what you're supposed to do. I want you to really hear that. You may decide that, you know what, we're going to kiss. We, ha- we were leading the singles at the time, and there was so much sexual morality. Every woman I discipled was being immoral with her boyfriend. And I was like, what's going on? So we made the decision, you know what, Our, we only dated for two months, and we were engaged for two and a half months, and we got married. <laughs> Isn't that the best? Um, But the kiss happened after dating, after being together for four and a half months, right? When people are in longer relationships, I just think they need to talk about it. So that's actually, I don't say this self-promotionally, but there's a whole chapter on it in in the book, Redeemed Sexuality. Okay. Oh, how do you talk to an 11-year-old? Is there a script? Oh, my gosh, that's like the best question ever. Okay, so there are books that I always recommend, and they're called God's Design for Sex. There's book one, two, three, and four. Book one just goes into the differences between boys and girls, and it's a book that you would use for third to sixth graders. And then there's a uh, level two, which is for like five to eight, and it goes into how babies are made. The penis goes in the vagina. I always recommend parents, yes, Tell your seven or eight year old child that mommy and daddy have sex. You know, and then you don't need to share any more details. But the reality is, people ask, should I? Yes, parents have sex. And, you know, it's an okay thing. I, I don't even know if some of my family members know this, but I had one of my children say to me one day, So, mom, 
I was walking up the stairs, and I heard things, and I said, oh, what did you do? He said, I put my earphones in, because that's what my friend says he does. I said, oh, you guys have talked about it. I said, well, and his friend's parents are some of my best friends, and so I jokingly said to them, so, you know, our boys are talking about putting their earphones in. (laughs) You know, it's like, but I loved the fact that he could actually say that to me. The talk about sexuality should be their entire life, okay? Um, I'm sorry, let me look at this. I would love, I cannot read all of this, and I'm sorry, but the person who wrote, Why do the Marrieds, uh, why do the Marrieds don't speak of sexual intimacy when a single is, oh, wait, okay, I think I get it. Oh, yeah, why don't, hey, Marrieds, how come you don't? You should. That's actually, I, I had forgotten to include that slide on the burning, reeling. I, and I realized that last night I went, I was before I sent the slides to Brian, and I was like, oh, I need to make sure that slide's in there. I realized in my own preparation for this, I had left out how wonderful sex is. We needed to openly talk about it. You know, um, they need to know how it goes. You know, I don't say share all the details. I don't share with my own children all the details, but they need to know that it's enjoyable. My children actually go, ew, they don't want to know, right? But absolutely you should be talking about it. So married, next time you're in a gathering and you're standing next to a sister who's single and she was at this talk, say to her, don't make her feel weird, say, say to her, so how was that talk for you? Do you have any questions for me? Like, let's start talking about it, right? Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is such a good question. This is from someone that's married, but it's a good question for everybody. Is there any way to retrain my brain to make sex about satisfaction and not just my husband's? About my own satisfaction? Let me tell you something physical. Oh, I didn't even tell you this. I showed you the clitoris. Okay, the clitoris has, okay, your fingertips, like if you ever saw the body's exhibit that goes around, so they showed where all the nerves are, the most nerves in your body are in your fingertips and in your tongue. Incorrect. The, The clitoris has two to three times more nerve endings than any other part of your body. God actually created the female body to enjoy sex. The male. Thank you, Jacqueline, for saying amen. There's single people in the room. Should I say amen to that? The male body has no counterpart. The penis, they pee out of it. Sperm comes out of it. That's where they become hard and, and they ejaculate. The clitoris has no job. You don't pee out of it. 
No sperm comes out of it. Your eggs are not made there. Its only job is pleasure. I have a young woman who is in my home a lot, and she said to me just a couple weeks ago, she said to me, you know what, if he's good, I'm good. And I said to her, that sounds really giving. But it's, <laughs> but it's not going to work in the long run. Men are, I'm just telling you this, even young girls, men are turned on when you're turned on. Women need to enjoy their sexuality. Married women need to enjoy their sexuality. Women, if you're single, do not buy that thing that all guys want sex and women don't. Okay, let me ask you this. What's the word that we use just in the world for men when men like sex a lot? What are they, what, what are they called? Sex addicts. Yeah. Players. Horn dogs. That's a big one. If they like sex a lot, they're called a, yeah, Don Juan, right? If women like sex a lot, what do we call them? Whores and sluts. I asked that question internationally, and that's the answer. We, we just have this thing that men are supposed to like sex and women aren't. It is not true. You are not benefiting your marriage if you're not paying attention to your own pleasure and enjoyment. Well, ladies, we are a minute over time. So you have a bunch of other lovely questions. I will answer them. Please come up and feel free to ask any at any time. It has been lovely to be here. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.